Are you an enterprise dissatisfied with overpriced analytics software that can't keep up with modern data? If so, then GraphWell is the solution for you. GraphWell is an unstructured data analytics platform for enterprises who demand total data visibility across their network. GraphWell lets your security team go beyond the SIM and fuse data sources to correlate and answer questions you didn't know needed to be asked. Go to gravwell.io forward slash security weekly for an unlimited data trial and gain uncompromising visibility today. Today's determined attackers easily bypass even the most advanced network defenses. Trying to ramp up staff to detect their back doors can cost thousands of dollars and take months, even years. With Active Countermeasures AI Hunter, we enable junior analysts to detect even the most advanced back doors in a matter of hours. Sign up for a demo and purchase our product today by visiting activecountermeasures.com forward slash ESW. Active Countermeasures. Make every analyst a hunter. Skeleton keys, golden tickets, forged packs, DC sync, DC shadow. The Active Directory attack surface is expanding faster than admins can keep up with. Securing your environment begins with implementing least privileged administrative models, but does not end there. Many organizations send Active Directory syslog events to a SIM platform. However, logs are noisy, of limited scope, and are time-consuming to review and act upon. Active Directory is secure when it's clean, understood, configured properly, monitored closely, and controlled tightly. Stealth Bits technology Technologies provide solutions that monitor, secure, and detect the latest threats against Active Directory. Visit them today at stealthbits.com to learn more. Welcome back, everyone, to Enterprise Security Weekly. I have brought on uh, two additional people on the lines via Skype. Uh, first is one of our own, Mr. Jeff Mann, has joined us. Jeff, welcome. Hey, Paul. It's uh, fun to be on a different podcast today. Thanks for letting me join. Absolutely. Nice to have you here. And I have to ask, are you wearing pants behind that desk? Uh, Maybe. Maybe. (laughs) We'll leave that as a mystery for our viewing audience. Podcasting Uh, naked. That's it. That's it. Uh, Adam Gordon from IT Pro TV is here with us. Adam, welcome. Hey, everybody. Hey, Paul. Good to see you again. Yes, nice to see you as well, Adam. And the topic for today is penetration testing. And, you know, I think we're going to take a little different angle for the Enterprise uh, Security Weekly audience. We're going to talk about, you know, conducting penetration testing assessments uh, internally. So you're working for the uh, foreign organization. You're conducting those tests for your own organization. Uh, not as necessarily an external uh, assessment, but I'm sure we'll, you know, we'll talk about uh, external assessments, uh, maybe touch on that briefly. Uh, and talk about like what's not in the books. Like what are they don't? What are they not telling you about pen testing? Uh, I think is you know Adam's uh, spin on it. Of course, Jeff always has thoughts and opinions about penetration testing. So this is certain to be a lively discussion. So Adam, why don't you uh, start taking us through it? Absolutely, absolutely. So let me just uh, do the following here. If we can throw my screen up. We'll get there. We go. Okay. <laughs> Takes a sec. So anyway, I titled our conversation, or at least just some thoughts around what they don't tell you, right? And you know, we talk a lot about pen testing um, in many different avenues and venues, certainly from an IT pro perspective, from a security and a practitioner perspective. People always have thoughts. I think one thing I'll throw out at the beginning as we get started is, is pen testing as a concept really still defining what we're doing, or is pen testing as a concept, whether internal or external, is it really perhaps morphing into something different? And I want to explore that a little bit when we're talking, because I think it's really moving beyond just pen testing as a described and defined term these days to incorporate many other activities we engage in. Think about vulnerability assessments, risk mitigation, uh, threat intelligence, and the aggregation of data across multiple platforms. And I think it's 
unfortunately, the term is a victim of its own success, right? We've done a really good job at educating IT professionals as to what is important, but I think we haven't necessarily done a good job of redefining what we think those important things are with the up-to-date technologies and vocabulary that we engage around. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that as we get started, but I think there's some real interesting things going on out there, some real interesting companies doing this kind of work, and I think it's important to think about broadening our thought process as we engage around risk mitigation and threat management. So that'll be just the general thought process and theme. Uh, so jump in, obviously engage around this conversation as we go. I'm sure there's some interesting commentary you may want to throw out there. Just a word about me. You could see who I am. That is my real hair, by the way, and that mm -hmm. is my real beard, in case you were wondering. And yes, I am wearing pants while we're talking as well. Uh, but I've been doing this for a long time, as some of you may have seen me uh, doing other podcasts and other webinars uh, in various venues. I do work for IT Pro TV as one of our edutainers here, uh, and I've been doing this for over 30 years. Uh, I was with uh, a small technology training company that you may have heard of for about 20 years before I joined IT Pro TV full time, uh, a company called New Horizons. And you can keep up with me on LinkedIn, Twitter, et cetera, and kind of share your thoughts with me about this or any other topics we go uh, and get started with. Just a word about my company, IT Pro TV. We do have a coupon code up in the upper right hand corner. You'll see it again at the end of the discussion. Uh, and if you're interested in signing up, take advantage of it. Uh, we're offering some nice discounts on content for you uh, while we're talking. But we are in the space that provides uh, what we call edutainment, right, which is engaging learning uh, across uh, the enterprise space. We deal with all sorts of different technology companies and all sorts of different technologies. We encourage you to take a look at itpro.tv and find out more about us. And Adam, find us for our, our listening yeah. audience, what is the, the discount code associated with this with this segment? So right up there, as I had it up there, I do apologize. Coupon code is webinar30, webinar30, uh, and it's good for up to 30% off on any of our membership levels. We'll, hope, we'll throw it up again at the very end okay. on the slide deck for you as well. Awesome. All right. So just – and I'm not a big infographic, info um, item person, but I threw one out there from uh, a company we all know, Gartner, uh, because I thought it was just a great way to start the conversation, which is uh, an info fact about – the spend rate and the potential uh, upping of that spend rate over the next three to four years. Currently, Gartner's assessing that we spend, let's just round up and say approximately 90 billion on fighting all aspects of cybercrime. And it's a very amorphous term because there's so many things that go into that. Mm. But they're projecting that number will reach roughly 1 trillion. Uh, we're on a run rate to be up around 1 trillion by 2021. And, you know, I posed the question there, what does this really mean? And I, I think it plays right in the conversation we started to have about where we are with pen testing today and what the associated aspects of information security management in the enterprise are. If we're spending upwards of $100 billion on average a year today across the world globally on IT risk mitigation and cybercrime threat reduction, and we're projected to potentially spend 10 times that over the next three to four years, how are we allocating that money? What activities are we engaging in? Are we doing the things that we need to do from the perspective of being effective? And if so, uh, how are we classifying and defining them? And what are we doing to support them? I think are all important questions when we think about pen testing and the impact it has in the enterprise. So hey, I would just challenge you uh, as we get started ahead, to think about this with the uh, amount of money we're spending. Yeah, a, a quick question and, and not to digress too much on the, the Gartner forecast, but do do they provide any sense of what the allocation of the, this projected growth and spending is going to be, 
you know, tools versus pro services versus outsource versus whatever. Uh, they do, depending on on the the report and the technology verticals you look at. This was just an all up kind of figure. I didn't break mm -hmm. it down by silo or, or by technology and vertical. Uh, and my apologies, it probably would have been relevant to do that. Uh, but yes, they do. Uh, but as you probably are well aware, uh, when you deal with Gartner, unless you're consuming at a very high level, uh, you have to pay to play, right? So you have to pay to subscribe and ultimately use that data. Uh, and if you are paying to look at the data feeds and, and get that in-depth reporting, there are some real interesting breakdowns on that spend by vertical, by industry, and by technology. So the information is definitely out there. So you may not have the answer to this, but I guess more germane to our conversation is the the industry that is pen testing is is that also considered to be a growth industry or plateauing or or what? It is actually um, growth uh, oriented, I would okay. say. Um, all indicators, not just from Gartner, uh, but but a variety of different industry reporting arms, uh, Forbes, for instance, and, and many of those kind of uh, other areas that aggregate data are all showing. Uh, increase. But I think the problem is we don't often see pen testing broken out as its own vertical. We see it integrated today, as I was indicating in my opening remarks, probably more under the category of risk mitigation or threat intelligence, threat assessment. There's different buzzwords you may hear it discussed around, but you don't necessarily see it broken out just as pen testing as its own little standalone, oh, look, we're getting this much revenue or spending this much against it. So I think it's challenging for us to understand the true impact because we don't really see it reported that way. That's one of yeah, the problems. And I, I think, you know, as you're both kind of alluding to that, you know, there's been this kind of uh, morphing and changing landscape that we traditionally like slap a label on pen testing. And I think in terms of someone, whether that's an internal resource or external resource, finding some kind of issue that would equate to risk in your environment. Hopefully, as we increase spending, we should be decreasing that risk, but we need some kind of checks and balances. And I think we think of Pentest as this external firm that comes in and does a test, but there's so many different aspects today, right? We've got maybe your external pen testers that are, are really looking at some of the more serious issues uh, that could happen in your environment uh, and, and looking at ways to persist in, in other more advanced techniques. But then, you know, we've got bug bounties, which I think also kind of scratch that itch for finding risk in my environment. We've got crowdsource pen tests, right, which you can uh, interact with firms and they will crowdsource uh, a pen test for you. And then we've got this whole uh, attack simulation market as well. Uh, and then, of course, I think we could also bolt on vulnerability management because I think a lot of times when people say pen testing, they really mean vulnerability scanning or vulnerability management, and, th and there's a yep. difference. So, you know, I, I think there's all the market will put this sometimes all under the umbrella of pen testing, but there's different components each that have different value, which should all be speaking towards like the investment you're making in security. Are they working? And, and I think that's really the question that, that we're seeking to answer with all these activities. Uh, absolutely. And, and, you know, kind of just yeah, echoing what I was talking about earlier, it's a great way of, of framing it. It is a multidimensional, multi-part um, environment or landscape we look at when we look at how we engage around this historical activity that we've just monolithically described as pen testing. And it's a very rich, very feature-laden and, and in many cases, very confusing landscape today because of all the options. Uh, and when you bring cloud environments yeah. and hybrid scenarios into the mix, which is becoming the standard and norm, 
uh, it becomes even more important to understand how to narrowly define and really assess need and requirements around reporting, governance, risk, and compliance, GRC activities in general, and auditability from a vendor perspective because we don't have control over the tight reins we used to when we owned our own infrastructure end-to-end. Right. And if we don't take that into account, we may underperform and overestimate our ability to be able to address risk and validate concern. And that can lead to financial liability and penalty as well as, you know, obviously, exposure, confidentiality, integrity concerns, all the things that we talk about that obviously are bad. So we really have to be on the top of our game even more so, I think, now than ever before because of the complex nature of the environments we're managing threat through and the chained or, I guess, value-laden uh, propositions we have around being able to create these hybrid environments that involve multiple vendors potentially, and as a result, maybe multiple companies that are interacting around our information flows. So it's a very interesting time, but also I think a very challenging time. Um, when, when I think of if we could just uh, you know, maybe turn our attention back into this discussion, but into the approach we were talking about when we think of are we internal, are we external, where are we, what do we do, you know, I frame the conversation and my thoughts and my notes and my slides about, you know, pen testing. There we go. Yeah, there we go. Pen <laughs> testing and, and does it equal ethical hacking? And, you know, we often hear people talk about this as well. And I thought I'd throw it out because I, I think, again, you know, we may suffer from the over-marketing of a term and the under-representation of the actuality of it in terms of what it means. And I think pen testing is definitely an ethical hacking activity. But I think it's only that if we are checking off the boxes and meeting the obligatory requirements around regulation, governance, you know, and oversight. And specifically, most importantly, we often talk about this, but I see it missed a lot of times when we deal with internal pen testing, the need to secure permission and to establish boundaries before we simply go off and act in what we think is potentially the best interest of our customer, even yeah. if the customer is ourselves. And, you know, I, the term ethical hacking, I think, is is somewhat interesting. You know, we, of course, use it, and I, I get it, what it represents or what we believe it represents, but I almost look at a pen test as permission to act in an unethical manner to discover, you know, vulnerabilities or weaknesses, right? Because a, a lot of what we're doing when, especially we term it ethical hacking, I tend to associate that term with social engineering, I basically have permission to act in some unethical manner to trick your users into doing something they're not supposed to or bypassing security and getting someone to hold a door open for me as I, I walk into the facility that could be termed somewhat unethical behavior, but it's ethical because I have permission. And I think that that term ethical hacking doesn't necessarily capture some of the, the processes and goals of your penetration test. Very true. And, and, you know, again, I struggle with some of the vocabulary, which is why mm -hmm. I pointed out because you in many conversations over many years with customers, with students, with colleagues, uh, you know, we, we talk in the language of our, our environment, right? And this is the common language most IT and security professionals have been taught to use over the last 15, maybe 20 or so years. And I, I think it does underrepresent and over um, simplify, right, the complexities that we have to deal with and also the value we bring to an organization by engaging these activities. If it was as simple as simply saying, I'll act ethically, we wouldn't really understand the nature of threat and risk because right. threat and risk is not ethical, and it's mm -hmm. going to be the exact opposite of that when we face it in the real world. So it does, I think, as I argued in the beginning of our conversation, really speak to the idea of needing to redefine and broaden our thought process around how we speak the language 
of uh, engagement of risk management of threat mitigation. I'm not pushing for the fact that on this discussion and coming out of this, you know, this uh, engagement that we come up with a new vocabulary. It's a multi-step, multi-engaged uh, level process, but I think it takes awareness from multiple venues to really push the conversation forward in our communities. And I think the, the quicker we think about what we say and what we do and how that impacts our ability to communicate that effectively, then I think we, we begin to see awareness and we begin to see that change. So it is important at least to throw that out there and be aware of it. Well, I think the flip side to that, you know, to, to put a more positive spin, because there's sort of a, an implication that, you know, the terminology, because it's so vague and so misunderstood, uh, and in my experience as a consultant, tends to lead customers down a path of uh, doing less than maybe what they ought to. But, you know, the flip side is because these terms are somewhat nebulous and undefined, there is opportunity to go beyond the boundaries of what, you know, maybe we understand is sort of the, the working definition of things like penetration testing and ethical hacking and expanding into areas where we might not call it a pen test or an ethical hack, but mm. it's certainly an activity like, uh, you know, testing an application, security testing, uh, whether it's a, a web application or not, uh, a company is producing a new something and, you know, having people that have the acumen like a pen tester to really kick the tires on, you know, whatever this new thing is that the company is producing, especially if it's an internal facing type of application or product or program that they're, that they're using. Even dare I say a third party uh, application or platform that they're bringing in. So, you know, we don't have to necessarily assume that we're limiting ourselves. We can also expand the boundaries to do other things under this loose umbrella of, what we're calling ethical hacking or penetration testing. No, it's great. It's a great point. It's a great observation. And it, it does, I think, speak to the rich ecosystem, right, of activities and opportunities to engage that we're talking about. And what I found, and, and I'm sure you see it, as you mentioned, as a consultant in the field with customers, a lot of times the customer may or may not realize the capabilities that an a security practitioner or a pen tester or an ethical hacker, whatever we may call that person that's going to engage in these activities, will bring to the table. And I think turning our attention back to the idea of being internal facing for a minute, I think the customer, the business, often misunderstands the capabilities and misses those rich opportunities to value and value from the activities of internal testing because they don't realize they can make that connection with internal resources big caveat assuming the skills are there right because obviously the internal practitioners have to be able to step up and and do the things that we're talking about doing but i find historically that a lot of my clients and, and a lot of my students have sold themselves or sold themselves short when they look internally because they're not convinced that their internal teams can do the same things that an external capability can bring to the table and while that may be the case in some in some environments I think it's often not the case, but I think it requires a rethinking of what it means to manage infrastructure and assess infrastructure internally and what skills we look to build and what skills we look to make available to the company. Well, so Adam, I think it does, it does wanna, require that. I want to hit on your point, too. If yep. you build that confidence within your own internal organization, you can then use an assessment or a pen test uh, as part of the decision process when you're choosing technology. Uh, and, you know, I've been fortunate and not all the time, but in some roles, I had the confidence of uh, the management and they were selecting technology and they would 
presented me some of the options and like, Paul, like, like, go test this and, and like, don't spend a lot of time, but like do some level of assessment. And I come back and say, look, I took this, you know, software product a, and in about an hour or two, like I uncovered all kinds of vulnerabilities in it and it was pretty terrible. And the other one was a little more difficult. And I'm like, my recommendation is stay away from software vendor a, cause they don't have their act together. And we're going to incur a lot of risk and potentially a lot of work uh, and time and money and resources to really make this secure but in this other vendor, like they're a lot better. And that getting ahead of that process and using pen testing to help in the evaluation phase is somewhere where I think an internal pen test can be of great value. It, it can be. And I think um, the, the only thing I would say, I 100% agree. I'm, I'm 100% aligned with what you're saying. And, and I think there's tremendous value in the point we're making. The, the one thing I just want to circle back to about it is, and again, it's it's a question of semantics and vocabulary. I don't have a problem with saying an internal pen test, but what I think we're also talking about, quite honestly, is, as you said, per- perhaps a product assessment, mm-hmm. perhaps an assessment of risk. There's lots of ways to talk about it. But what I like to see is customers taking advantage of their internal skill sets if they're well-defined and they're well-understood to validate, as you said, that initial look. But then also knowing their limitations, right? If I don't have uh, an IT team internally or through perhaps extended capabilities that's available to me as as an on-call resource within the boundaries of the organization that's deep in the LAMP stack, hypothetically on the Linux side for web hosting, and I want to assess LAMP-related products to figure out whether we can throw our new web interface up on a Linux stack as opposed to Windows, I don't want to rely on my internal team, not because they're not going to be able to be good, but I want to perhaps get their take on things. And then I want to go to an external third party who specializes in that to really push those buttons and figure out where the do's and don'ts are. And I find that companies tend to struggle with this demarcation point between internal capacity and capability and external need and requirement. And I think well-defining or being more comfortable being truly critical and assessment-based of the internal skills of your teams leads you to really be able to understand how to demarcate risk and assess value, but also assess vulnerability in that risk stack when you look at it across you know, the internal versus external boundary of how we test. So I think it's just an important point to reinforce in our conversation. No, I, I agree with that, certainly. Yeah. So I thought it would be good just to turn our attention for a minute to the hey, now that we've talked about, you know, maybe the blowing up of the traditional thought process to include all these other technologies, techniques, and capabilities, let's get back to basics for a minute. What are the actual stages? More often than not, right? Obviously, everything is relative, but what are the the traditional stages we often talk about with a pen test? Just to throw them out there, make sure everybody's kind of aligned with them. Again, localization and um, specifics of your particular environment notwithstanding. I've seen this done a thousand different ways. But as you slice and dice, you ultimately come more or less back to the same kinds of steps on the screen. Planning, research, and recon, just you can call that requirements gathering, fact-finding. There's lots of terms we hear for that. But that's where we do our research and really understand and lay out our uh, beginning approaches to what we think we're going to be able to do and under what circumstances. When we think about scanning, we're talking about starting to look for entry points and starting to figure out what those opportunities will be to push and what expectations we may have based on those outcomes. When we think about gaining access, we're talking about at that point actively engaging and taking advantage of whatever liabilities or perhaps misconfigurations that may exist that we've uncovered, whatever those are. And when we talk about maintaining access, it's great to get in, but we have to stay there. But people often miss the fact that maintaining access is not just about planting a flag and saying we can go back to it, but it's being able to stealthily 
uh, observe and recon and continue to maintain that viability without being uncovered for a period of time, whatever you defined the engagement as. Uh, and then analysis and reporting. And for me, this is the most important of the five phases because this is the one that I often, unfortunately, see really great, really knowledgeable, really tactically proficient um, security professionals drop the ball because they're not able to move out of the let's engage, let's do the physicality of hacking, and be really good at the tool piece and engage in the more strategic, mm. more visionary discussion around audience relevancy and communication with regards to relaying those findings back to the C, either senior managers or whatever the engagement level is in the organization. Uh, and so I just, I always want to try to stress that when I talk to people, because I think it's there at the analysis and reporting stage, ultimately, where we make or break our ability to, to claim success and really add value in the eyes of our customer. So I'm glad you brought that up, because what was to me missing from your just summary of the, the activities or steps of a pen test is, and I think it ties into what you're saying ultimately, but before you start the pen test, what is the goal? What is the objective? You know, why are we doing a pen mm. test? And I, and for the purposes of our discussion, I would take that even a step further to say, you know, what's the difference between the goals of an external pen test versus the goals of an internal pen test? And and start from there, and then proceed with all your other steps. A absolutely, and and yes, I. F fault totally mine for not calling it out as a separate bullet point up above where we engage in planning, research, and recon. The first step clearly, without exception and without um, any thought, needs to be uh, conversations with your customer around statement of work boundaries, what, what is and is not going to be allowed, and also where you do have and don't have permission to be able to engage, right? Those are going to be very strictly defined. They should be anyway, if you're going to do this the right way, strictly yep. defined, and they link directly to the end game, which is how you analyze and then ultimately report back. So it's a good point to make, and it's a very important one for us to be aware of. There's no doubt about it. Well, also, and well, I think what Jeff is speaking to is expected outcomes, right? Defining those before you yep. start. I mean, you have your rules of engagement. Here's what we want to assess, but what are the expected outcomes from the assessment, I think, is, is super important. And I think not just expected outcomes, but also um, you know, potentially unlooked for opportunities and or surprises, right? I always try to work in to my conversations with customers, all the things we just talked about, but I also want a catch-all discussion or clause or agreement point that says, and when we find things that may be out of scope that we're not going to push on, we have a, a mechanism or a way to at least notify you that these require potential further follow-up, either in a separate engagement or a separate conversation lateral to what we're doing so that we can flag them so you know that you need to go back and take a look because maybe they were out of scope and we couldn't really assess them, but at least we found, excuse me, we found them and we want to make you aware of them. And I think that's really important when you're talking about expectation management and observables versus perhaps, you know, inferred uh, goals that you're looking to, to document because you will find unknown things and you have to talk to the customer about what they may mean. And I think, you know, that's one of the values in the early stage, too. You know, you had recon listed up there and so many organizations and, and some are very aware of it and some that may be having a, an assessment of any kind for the first time and just not know what all their assets are, like asset identification. Uh, that could be IP addresses, that could be domain names, it could be systems, it could be software, whatever it is. Uh, I think all organizations I speak to have some level of, uh, you know, uncomfortableness when they think about well, what exactly do I own and what do I have to protect? Because in today's environment, especially, it's changing all the time. 
and there may be pieces I don't know about. So in the recommendations, there could be suggestions for process improvement to make sure that you're constantly trying to identify new assets. And, you know, I think that first step is when I did pen testing and even pen testers I talked to today uh, and even bug bounty companies are like, well, we want to identify where all your assets are. And like, did you know you had this system out there on the internet before we even started the test? And if that's news to you, like a, in, when we get to the report, it should be ways to improve that identification phase. And, and that's just like one of the fundamental steps uh, in well, any kind of assessment is knowing what you have. Well, call me old fashioned and or idealistic, but to my way of thinking, if you're if you're discovering significant uh, assets that the companies are unaware of, if I was doing the pen test, I'd be stopping the pen test right there and (laughs) and and spending the rest of the dollars on, you know, some basic architecture lessons or or how to do some of the basics of, uh, you know. IT management, uh, asset management, because you're to, to me, you're, you're you know, and I, th- I know we're going to have this conversation later with another set of people, but you know, it, it's kind of shooting fish in a barrel if they don't even know that they mm-hmm. own something that ultimately pr- proves to be vulnerable to some sort of compromise. It is, but I'll go, I'll go you one better to expand your point. I agree 100% with what you're saying. But, mm-hmm. but here's an interesting you know, issue we now face more and more, which is the extension of our supply chain and risk around supply chain and how that boundary is now being extended into third, fourth, fifth parties that are feeding right, infrastructure and uh, potentially um, providing services. Right? So in a right. managed service provider relationship these days, we can pen test and assess the boundary perhaps of what we own directly and maybe even indirectly in certain cases, but I may not be able to go in and really get a true assessment of some of the systems that my company is engaging around because they may not be owned by my company. And I may have to rely on that third party to provide that attestation or assessment. And if they're not as good at doing it as we are, we may be flying blind, unfortunately, because of limitation of contractual relationship as opposed Mm -hmm. to a limitation of skills and ability. And that becomes a very big risk that I find more and more while we're aware of, we may not be doing a good job of calling out and really understanding how to address, meaning, hey, let's put that front and center and let's talk to that company about what we're going to do differently uh, because there may be ways to improve that relationship or provide additional attestation or coverage, but it may not be something either company has thought about in the rush to partner and the rush to provide services. And I think that's an, un, an undiscussed but unfortunately under, underserved area of risk. No, I, I agree with that, and and like you said, uh, you know the, the the new ways that that companies are doing business, you know, frankly, are just blurring the lines on just about everything we do, and, and that is an ongoing challenge. Uh, you know, if you're if you're running up against systems that you don't know that you own, but you think you're your third party provider or your third, you know, some some somebody in your you know. Uh, you know, supply chain is responsible for, and it comes down to, uh, you know, reading the small print of the of the license agreement, the contractual agreements to find out who owns what. While I agree that's really, really important, essential, uh, it is blurring the lines, and and you know, not to not to get too picky, uni, but is it still an internal pen test at that point? 
It's a great point because, you know, in a, in a cloud environment, right, just as the, the prototypical example of what we talk about in multi-tenant environments that are managed mm -hmm. by a third-party CSP or MSP, a cloud or managed service provider, we have limited capabilities at best. Forget about management capabilities, but pen testing is more restrictive than overall mm -hmm. management. And we almost, without exception, are relying on that vendor and their ability to provide attestation and also visibility and insight really constrains our hands as security and IT professionals. And we may or may not be able to get beyond certain boundaries. And it's potentially internal as an extended hybrid environment, right? But what is yep. the endpoint boundary today? Is it the device being held in the hand of the remote user on that VPN connection? Is it the infrastructure stacked and racked in a data center that we don't control? Is it infrastructure okay. sitting in my data center that's bridged to that other data center? Is it the ISP's connection between the two on a dedicated connection or an open pipe that we take a chunk of and allocate to somebody else? There's all these scenarios that in the last 15 or 20 years have changed dramatically mm -hmm. the way we do business and consume information. And it's an ever-evolving environment, right? I mean, that's the nature of what we do. That's the beauty of what we do. But it's also the challenge of what we do. And we but, have to uh, keep coming up I with ways wager... to envision how we change that. I would wager that all of us that have had uh, commercial customers that fit into this category, when you start explaining a lot of that nuance to them, <laughs> their response is, huh? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, it's a very interesting time. It always is, but it's especially now an interesting time to be talking about these topics because there's so many new ways to approach this problem. But at the same time, the problem is still the problem, right? We have undefined risk and we have to assess the impact potentially to the organization from a, a dollars and cents and ultimately a legislative and regulatory and statutory compliance concern perspective. So it's always really exciting. Uh, I threw just some general tools, uh, not because they're representative of everything we do, but, you know, people always ask, what kind of tools do you use? Are there tools out there that are, you know, uh, open source? Are there Linux-based tools? Are there Windows tools? There's wireless tools. There's all sorts of stuff. It's a very small list, uh, and there's a thousand other things that could be on that list, depending on who you ask. Uh, so big disclaimer, not totally representative of any one stack or need by any means but just a sampling of different tools you often hear about and often see. Um, pen testers, vulnerability assessors, and risk managers in a variety of scenarios talking about. I just think it's interesting, I'll call two out in particular, that I find value in, I think they're all very valuable, but I, I find especially the pedigree of two of these tools in particular to be interesting. Uh, Metasploit, which is I think very representative of a entire genre of tools that started out as dark web hacking tools that have really made their way into the commercial validated space of, you know, the light of day that people are now really starting to use and corporate entities have bought into and have become uh, mainstream and, and I guess, uh, uh, respectable, if you will. So I think it's just representative of that. It's very interesting. Well, and Adam, when you, you look know, at where it came from, it's kind of interesting where it's going. And along those lines, it's very interesting. Uh, and I don't know if they are, uh, Rapid7 has published exact statistics, right? But uh, in talking with people in our community, there's a, a very definitive uh, timeline that if uh, an exploit is uh, in Metasploit for a particular vulnerability, the time to patch is significantly reduced. And there's a lot of vulnerabilities that can go largely ignored. And, you know, we cover it all the time on the network about, you know, how vendors do like hand waving uh, to get around that vulnerability. But the evidence is there. Like once it's in Metasploit, the, whoever's responsible for that vulnerability really pays attention to it and gets it fixed because it's in Metasploit. And I think that's one of the things that 
for better or worse, right, has improved the, the time to fix and make patches available for certain software. I'd like to think that there are other factors that should play into that, not just, oh, it's in Metasploit, so now we have to fix it. I think there should be uh, a more reasonable trigger to fix a vulnerability outside of it's in a popular exploit framework, but, you know, there you have it. Well, I think it speaks to the broader issue, right, of, of the fact that, you know, organizations uh, unfortunately have so much to contend with today, not just in this space, but in general, as we manage infrastructure across the various technology stacks we all use, it's very hard to be focused in any one area. We're doing less with more. This is a general theme we've talked about in other episodes. Uh, when you've invited me to come on and speak about other topics, and I'm sure you talk about with other uh, guests as they join you for a variety of, of discussions. And because of that, it's very hard to focus on any one area unless it's a burning fire. And it's that reactive versus proactive conversation we keep coming back to in one way or another. And it would be great if we could be proactive, to your point, but the reality of our world is unfortunately that we're either relying on third-party vendors to engage in those activities mm -hmm. in this cloud-managed space for us. And I think we've atrophied our skills to do that internally to a degree, as I mentioned in other discussions before. And I think we have to pick and choose our battles. And unfortunately, a lot of times we pick and choose battles around things that are burning and right. therefore we think are important as opposed to things that we could proactively deal with before they get to that point. And that's uh, a big gap that's going to continue to grow and assess. We have to assess and really be aware from a risk perspective. So Adam, what was the other tool on the list? Metasploit was one. I'm, I'm anxious to hear what your, your second kind of pick is for. Yeah. So if you put the list back up, I'll, I'll, I'll point it out. It's at the top of the other column, the Z attack proxy, the zap tool, um, you know, which comes to us from OWASP, those of us that may be familiar with the pedigree of many of the tools on this list. But I like it, and I like all of them, as I said, but I like where this tool has been and where it's going again, just from a kind of a geeky trivia and interesting pedigree perspective. It's one of those tools that I think is very underrepresented and perhaps not well known, but it's becoming more popular and it's also really making its way out into the world. Again, I think at a time where these kinds of tools become very relevant because of cloud technologies. And I've seen more and more interest in it as, as cloud has continued to climb in terms of its impact. So I like this tool a lot because it comes from an open source perspective. It is, uh, as a result, I think, uh, getting uh, perhaps not a fair shake in the beginning, but I think it's becoming, as I said, more relevant and mainstream. And so I would just, uh, in pulling the list up, really challenge those of you that watch this and engage around it to think about tools you use, right, as we all do. And as I said, that list is going to look very different depending on what perspective you come from. Are you virtualization-centric? Are you cloud-centric? Are you on-prem hardwired infrastructure that's still physical? There's different ways to assess. But I think it's two very interesting tools from different perspectives and different vantage points on the list. Yeah, certainly as more and more uh, applications uh, come about that can be assessed using that uh, Z-Attack proxy. You know, I'm thinking mobile applications. You've got a cloud-based application. It's got an API. And you need to assess that. I think that's why you're seeing a kind of a, a resurgence in some of these uh, web attack pro or a proxy so that you can actually look at the data and see what's happening and uncover vulnerabilities. And yeah, and just following up to, to kind of round that out, linking that back to cloud stacks where web services, cloud services, whatever we call them, however we categorize them today, are becoming more and more mainstream and really are one of the key things driving growth of cloud is, you know, this ability to be able to send this information and host it in the cloud and then consume it globally through content delivery networks and all the other stuff that we're doing. This massive scalability on these platforms without necessarily the same focus on securing every aspect of integration around that platform, uh, API security being a really, really important one. 
uh, is something that's driving the, I think, the the advent of tools like this, and hopefully will become a, a resonant point with not only pen testers and vulnerability assessment professionals, but also IT administrators that are dealing with cloud services. It's one of the big misses I find more and more that we're seeing a lot of evidence that we could improve on is mobile platform support, but generically API security overall. And I thought we would just, at least from my perspective, throw out a quick uh, discussion around, as we always do when we talk about learning and, and in general, just knowledge, right? You know, certifications um, and, and really just breaking into three categories, what some of the key points are. I tried to put something related to pen testing into every one of these, although it may not be evident. Uh, it is in the middle tier, but it may not be as evident in the general IT and leadership tier. But I think it's important to think about how we communicate our message around the importance of security education and awareness to all levels of IT professionals, not just those that are in the trenches every day, really hands-on, rolling up their sleeves, doing the pen testing. That's represented in the middle tier here with IT security professionals and whether it's CompTIA's new certifications around Pentest Plus and CISA uh, Plus, whether it's EC Council and the ethical hacking certification that we've spoken about, or Cisco's cyber ops or whatever you may choose off that list. I think there's a lot of, of really interesting opportunity there to hone your skills. But I think generalists that are in IT that are saying, hey, how do I learn more about IT security in general? How do I potentially position myself to become that internal IT resource that can start to engage in these activities, I think we have to have an answer for them, right? Because that's where our future practitioners are going to come from. And if we're not looking to the needs of the up and coming, our, our skills are going to atrophy. And over time, the attackers will win because there won't be anybody there to fight those battles. And so building good foundational skills with Network Plus, Security Plus, A Plus, whether you're vendor specific or agnostic, Cisco, Microsoft, VMware, whoever, you have to have a good foundation. You got to know what an IP address is. You got to understand uh, what an OSI model means and why multiple levels of engagement and, and all those things are important. And I think when you look strategically at leadership at the bottom of that stack, I really tried to broaden those skills out, not just focus on hardcore security management skills like CISSP and CISM may focus on, but bring in security and um, project management and service management frameworks that help us to understand how to be better at communication and better at partnering across the organization so that information silos get broken down and resources get applied where needed, but also information flows more freely so we can move more towards that proactive away from that reactive mentality that unfortunately we tend to be siloed and, and suffer with a lot of the time. So whether it's PMP, Six Sigma, SIAM, or whatever it may be, there's a lot of opportunity for pen testing to be able to broaden its approach and its partnering within the organization based on linking to these other knowledge areas that I think we have to just make sure we're talking about as we talk about the value of pen testing and what it may mean to an organization. Yeah, and I, so I, I, I think it's important to just separate uh, knowledge from skill, right? Like certifications may show that you have knowledge. What I tend to use more, and maybe not necessarily skill, which you get from uh, practice and, and hands-on experience, which is hard to get maybe if you don't have a certification, so you have that chicken and egg problem, and I get that. But it, I think in a lot of entry-level positions, what I'll use certifications for is not necessarily to show that they have knowledge because they may have that without the skill, but it shows enthusiasm. I care enough about 
my career to go put work, time, and effort and money into getting a certification because I'm passionate about this field. So I, it's kind of a, a checkbox, especially for entry-level positions. Uh, at least that's how I use it. Now, there are certain certifications that I think lean more heavily towards that, um, you know, practitioner and, and gaining skills. Uh, you know, SAN certainly has certifications, OSCP, and the pen testing light that can show uh, depending on how deep you go in those uh, training and certification programs can show that practitioner level of skill, which, you know, some of them rank a little higher for me in terms of gaining uh, skills more so than just knowledge. Um, but again, even if you're getting a certification to gain the knowledge, it shows you're passionate, at least in one aspect about this field. I think Paul yeah, I, and I were... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Adam. I, I think Paul and I were sort of picking up on the same thing. I wanted to approach it a little bit differently. You know, I, I go to a lot of conferences, meet a lot of people that are very eager and anxious to break into what they perceive as infosec or cyber. And, and very often that's, I want to be a pen tester. You know, how do I get mm -hmm. into pen testing? That looks really cool. So, and this is an opinion question and I won't hold you to it. And hopefully our, our listening audience won't hold you to it. But in your experience uh, as an edutainer, um, do you see any differences between people that uh, pursue either education or certification and uh, their success at not just finding jobs, but their success as pen testers versus uh, what, what Paul was sort of touching on, that, that, that drive, that curiosity? And, and I guess what I'm getting at is I, I, I kind of am leaning towards if you're going to be good at hacking, going to be, you know, going to be, going to be good at pen testing. It's almost something that it, you're, you've, you've got to be wired a certain way. It's something mm. that's part of you uh, that, that, you know, it's not necessarily aptitude or skill, but just sort of that, that inquisitive, uh, you know, nature to, you know, how does this work? What does this do type of thing, which I feel like some people have that and some people don't. And, and I'm curious, not holding you to it, whether you notice that, you know, when you're teaching courses, of course, you're doing it remotely. You probably don't interact a lot with students, but in your experience, do you see anything along those lines to try to help people, you know, if you got it, you got it. If you don't, you don't type of thing. Sure. And it's a great question. And I, I, in the 35 years or so I've been doing this, the majority of them in the field with people, either on customer sites or, or dealing with in-person classes now, as you said, you know, remotely more and more. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, I see a very, uh, let's call it the same kind of trend that you're talking about, which is most of my peers and colleagues, most of the people that I would look to and say are great at doing these things and, and are experts at what we talk about doing in this field, while many of them may hold certifications for one reason or another, it's never the primary driver for them. Um, it is an after-the-fact thought process that may be employer-driven or, or job-specific from a requirements perspective. But the thing that unites all of them together without exception is the thing that you've touched on, which is that passion to understand and that unquenchable curiosity to figure things out. I think the people that look to get certifications, I don't want to belittle certification by any means when I say this, I, I think it's very important, as we all pointed out, perhaps in an entry level to get your foot in the door, as Paul is suggesting, to validate your commitment and your desire to, to push forward, as we said. I think those things are important. But I think if all you're doing 
is forcing yourself to certify to prove you're good at it and you don't have a passion for it, you're, you're never going to be good at it. And I think you have to have that burning desire, whatever it is in life. This is generic, not just specific to this topic. If you're right. inquisitive and passionate about whatever you do, you're going to want to figure it out no matter what the, the challenges or roadblocks are in the way. And that's what I see out in the communities that we all engage around every day. It's what I see from passionate students that come into classes. It's what I see when I'm on site with customers, walking them through assessments, audits, pen tests, vulnerability assessments, whatever. You know, the people that are asking the questions that are insightful, that are intuitive, that want to be in there with you, figuring it out, are the people that really understand it. And a lot of times they may not be certified, but they just really understand what they're doing because they, they hack away at it every day, no, no pun intended. Uh, and so right. I think certification is important. But I think it's a litmus test of your commitment as opposed to a validation of your knowledge. And I think we're all probably saying the same thing. Yeah. And, and, I, and I don't want to discourage our listening audience to not pursue a career in InfoSec, cyber, pen testing or whatever. You know, by all means, go for it. I, I, but, but I think it's important to be self-reflective to some point because I know I've had conversations with people that are – they're looking to get into this business because it appears to be fun and the people that are up front talking that are you know well-known hackers pen testers you know that looks really cool i want to do that and that's absolutely okay as a driver but you know ask yourself you know, do you, you know, do you have that drive? Do you have that push again, not to discourage you? I mean, if you want to go for it, go for it. But I, I think the path is easier if you do have that sort of that curiosity, that, that, uh, that sort of innate, you know, how does this stuff work or how can I do something different or, or, you know, you know, the, the instructions say, do A, B, and C, what happens if I skip A and B and do C? There's some people that do that just naturally, and I know a lot of those people, but I know also a lot of people that are inherently, well, it, it says to do A, B, and C. I wouldn't dream of not following the instructions. And if you're that type of person, this path might be harder for you is all that I'm trying to say. I would go you one better. I, I would suggest that if you're the person who's who's living inside the proverbial box that we were just describing, and you mm -hmm. don't tend to be comfortable venturing outside of those borders with or without permission, this is not the appropriate career for you because you're just you're you may be marginally successful, but you're not going to add value to your customers' security posture, and you're going to miss a lot of things that would not be self. Um, intuitive or, or self-aware uh, uh, that others will pick up on. And, and it's to the detriment of your customer, ultimately, because you're just not going to be able to provide them as good a coverage and a good vantage point as somebody who lives outside that box on a regular basis. So you do have to be wired a little differently. I think it's a great way of putting it. And you got to look at the world and say, what would happen if I tore everything I know up and I came at it from a different perspective to be good at what we do? Because that's what the hackers are doing. That's what the bad actors are doing. They're taking mm -hmm. a thousand different attacks against a known infrastructure uh, entry point. And until they find the right one that combines those activities in a unique way to get in, they're not stopping. If we don't take that same approach, but from the perspective of defense, we're never going to keep them out. Yeah, that, that's a really great point. It begs the question, uh, 
in your experience, do you think this drive, this innate uh, desire to kind of tweak and poke and kick and prod and, and this curiosity, is that something that can be taught? Is that something that can be cultivated? Or do you either have it or you don't? So, Paul, I don't know if you want to weigh in. I heard you kind of humming there. Yeah. I'll just quickly throw <laughs> my perspective out, and then we'll give you the last word on this. Um, you know, I, I think to a certain degree it can be. I don't want, ever want to discount the value and the potential impact of education. I think we all uh, can look back on formative moments in our careers as IT and security professionals where we had that epiphany or aha moment because of something we learned. So I think education is foundational to our ability to feed that engine and engage that curiosity so we continuously refresh it and pursue it. But I, to your point more, more specifically, I don't think you could put somebody in a classroom and teach them how to look at the world in new and innovative ways unless they already have that in, innately inside of them. I think you can show them the door, but I think pushing them through it is something they have to figure out how to want to do and ultimately how to do by hitting their head against it every day without fail. Uh, because 99 times out of 100, when they try things, they're not going to work. And if you get discouraged easily, if you are looking for that one and done kind of quick I found the answer. Let me plant my flag, declare success. Yay, right? I got it right. Again, this career is probably going to be incredibly frustrating for you because it's a lot of dark hours where you're just trying things and beating your head against the wall going, it's not working. And it's very rare that you have that glimmer of light and that epiphany where you find things. And when you do, you have to have that inquisitive nature to figure out how to push on them and figure out what they mean. Uh, so I, I think it's hard to teach people that, but I think we can lay the foundation and give them the rich growth medium and environment that nourishes those people that are already good at doing that. And I think that's what the value of security education in this particular context. I think it's what the value of security education is uh, in this regard. Yeah, I think you either have it or you don't. However, you may have some of those abilities and not realize it. Like I've met a lot of people over you know the course of my career that maybe aren't in security, then maybe don't even like consider that. But I'm like, oh, you'd be really good at, at security. And they don't know they have it. And that's where maybe some training and education can certainly bring that out in a person. But I certainly think fundamentally uh, in a lot of different role, and this is just like a black or white issue, right? This is, you know, maybe for this role, like either you're cut out to do it or you're not kind of thing. But again, you may have those abilities and just not realize it. And that's where, you know, doing some training in, in education uh, can bring that out. I think that that's a great place to, to leave that conversation. I think that's a great way to sum it up. Uh, so I, I guess, you know, just in wrapping up in general, right, with regards to internal pen testing, what don't they tell you? So I think we've uncovered a lot of interesting uh, thought processes and threads, right, to pull on for everybody who's listening or will listen at some point. But I think for me, the biggest takeaway uh, in our conversation, you know, is aside from the obvious, it's ever-changing, ever-evolving landscape, you know, targets are moving, hard to keep track of them, all those things. For me, I, th I think the greatest epiphany is, is this last part of the conversation, which is, you know, there are people that innately have this capability, and I think it's incumbent not only on us to recognize that, but I'm thinking about this now from the hiring perspective, going back to our original thesis around, you know, do we have this internal team, and do they have the skills, and how do we identify that they do, and how do we put them to work? I think we have to challenge ourselves in our community, and, and I think I challenge my customers and my students, but we have to come up with better ways to figure out how to self-identify and identify those people that have these skills, to Paul's point. You know, black and white, either you have it or you don't. We all come across those people we think potentially have these capabilities, but for whatever reason haven't gone in that direction. 
And I think we have to do a better job in figuring out how to groom that next generation mm -hmm. of practitioners to get them interested in these activities, despite the challenges we pointed out about it being hard, perhaps being a thankless job in some respects, and, and constantly evolving and changing. I think we have to get them excited about information security and IT and everything else so that we have you know, the next generation of people that are going to stand on, on that picket fence and really defend us. Because what I see, unfortunately, right, in our industry these days is, and, and just look at, you know, the profile of myself, you know, graying, you know, a little bit of hair on top and not as much as I used to have, more white than, than dark in my beard. Look at all of us, right? We're all um, older uh, people, right, in this industry today. The, the key people that are doing these things, while there are many, many young people that are doing phenomenal things, the average age of my peers, my colleagues, and the people I deal with are, is, is on the northern side of that age range when we talk about IT security. And I think we're struggling with how to get people excited about coming into this field. We know there's a skill gap. And I think unless we find ways to get them motivated, we're going to face a significant challenge in the coming years. And this is one of that unspoken uh, parts of the conversation. It's not just about pen testing, but what I'm saying is I think it's a symptom of a broader issue which is how do we get younger people involved in IT security overall and get them excited about things like pen testing. Awesome. And Adam, what's that, that discount code uh, to kind of round up this uh, segment? Absolutely. I have it up on my screen, but I'll, I'll throw it out there verbally as well. You can see it right there. It's webinar 30, uh, and we encourage you to use that with IT Pro TV, uh, and we will be happy to uh, talk with you at length about your opportunities and our ability to service them if you use that code with us. It's itpro.tv, go.itpro.tv, specifically if you want to look at the other uh, pen testing webinar that some of my colleagues did recently. Uh, but if you want to just visit us in general, itpro.tv, and we'll be happy to chat with you and see if we can help you out. Awesome. Adam, thank you so much. Always wonderful talking with you. And with that, we will take a short break, come back and talk about lessons learned from RSA with Mr. Jeff Mann. So stay tuned. <laughs> 